Welcome to Matinees on Main Street. This is the podcast for the history of the movies, from the beginning. My name is Alan, and on this episode, we'll look at the beginning of the bitter legal battle at the heart of America's early film industry. In a way, this poisonous battle pretty much affects all of America's cinematic history up to the time of World War I. Its effects are so profound that France became the world's dominant cinematic force at this time, and it would continue to be so until that great war destroyed France's film industry. And it was around that time that the whole legal battle that I'm going to start discussing was finally knocked out by the U.S. government in the early 1910s. The story of the beginning of the Edison patent has been told in bits and pieces at different times in this podcast, but I guess it's time that we should reflect on the whole thing, as it's in the first few years of the 1900s that the first battles were finally settled. For most of its history, making movies required two machines, a camera and a viewer or projector. Basically, the mechanics are the same for both. Camera film goes from reel A to reel B. In both of the machines I mentioned, the film passes behind a camera lens. In the camera, light shines through the lens and exposes the image on the camera. In the projector, an artificial light reverses that process, but the lens enlarges the image so that the image can be shown on a large screen. But there is one problem with this process. In the way I just described the process, the undeveloped film in the camera would blur and become overexposed unless something controlled the light and rate of exposure. That's why cameras have shutters. And the brighter the light source, the faster the shutter speed. On the projector, it's a little different. You can use a shutter to help improve the moving image, but it was found that an intermittent device worked better. The very first movie camera was made by French scientist Etienne Jules Marais, and his process used a shutter. He showed Edison his camera, and when the great inventor created his own, he repeated what Murray had accomplished. At the time, Murray hadn't patented his camera, hoping to be generous with his gift to other scientists. In return, Edison wouldn't sell his camera on the open market. It existed only as a tool for the Edison lab to use, just as Murray had done with his camera. When Edison and Dixon devised the kinetoscope, instead of a shutter, the machine used a blinking light. Edison patented both machines in America. The patent process was slow, but by 1896, Edison did receive a patent on his kinetoscope. The only other person who devised anything similar was the man who helped him devise the kinetoscope, William Kennedy Laurie Dixon who conceived a tabletop machine that allowed you to scroll through thousands of cards with sequential photos on them. 
At the same time that the patent office accepted the patent for the kinetoscope, the patent application for the movie camera was rejected. The reason for that was probably because other people had already devised things that were very similar. While this may have bothered Edison, it was William Gilmore who was most concerned. Gilmore was the head of manufacturing at the Edison Company, and the company succeeded by making and selling both the projectors and the movies that were shown through them. As far as he was concerned, the company needed to control the making of movies as well as the making of machines in order to achieve their financial goals. At the time, their biggest competition had been the Lumiere brothers from France. But due to all the noise being made by the Edison Company concerning copyright infringement, the Lumieres started to ease away from the American market. In order to submit a successful patent application, Gilmore had Edison's lawyer, Richard Dyer, rewrite the camera patent. Film historian Martin Sapasi points out the two ways a patent can be written as far as most inventors do it, and in the way that the patent office prefers, a step-by-step -step explanation of the working process of the invention best suits everyone's needs. But many companies use lawyers to write patents because they're far more capable of writing something more theoretical. This allows the patent to cover more ground, so the lawyer can use a wider field when suing for patent infringement. Patent lawyers not only know the ways to fudge the patent description, they know the process behind applying for patents far more than any inventor does. It's very likely that it was Gilmore who told Dyer to do whatever it takes to get the patent approved, and it seems that Dyer and the patent office butted heads over the wording of the patent for some time. Then suddenly, in late 1897, the patent office unexpectedly accepted Edison's patent on the movie camera. Again, Dyer's wording for the explanation of the concept of the projector was so vague that it could be used to prevent the making of any kind of movie camera available at the time, regardless of its illumination process, its film advancement process, or even whether there was a take-up reel or not. And that's the way he intended it to be. No one then or now can explain why the patent was accepted, and some people believe shady dealings were involved, or that the patent officer was just too impressed by the Edison name to turn it down. Way back in Episode 4, I talked about the patent process when it involved the telephone and the questionable acceptance of the patent. Alexander Graham Bell was not involved with the patent process, but his father-in-law was a patent attorney of some renown. Either he or people he personally knew were involved in what was later to be revealed through historical research to be bribery of a patent officer who had a bad drinking problem. Also, Edison was not involved with the patent acceptance of the telephone, but he undoubtedly knew about it as he would soon upgrade the carbon transmitter on the telephone design that Western Union held. Edison was not necessarily a crook, but he knew enough to leave the patent process to his attorneys. As for Edison, his problems more likely lie with his largely inflated public ego. 
As America's great inventor, how could he not have invented the movies, especially if that's what everyone wanted to believe? Looking through the accounts in the newspapers concerning Edison, he was publicly humble enough to avoid laying claim to the movies. But due to his regular announcements about what he had achieved concerning moving image machines, the press was already crowning him as the process's inventor. He might have half-heartedly corrected them on occasion, but to them, he was just being humble. And this fantasy that Edison made the movies would continue. After the patent for the moving picture camera was accepted, Mutoscope Biograph's first response was to file a petition to hold a public use hearing. Harry Marvin stated that the concept that Edison had filed a patent for had been in use for over two years before Edison had devised his machine. They also mentioned that a written description in the patent application was different from the illustrations provided. Still, a month later, Edison's patent was affirmed. In 1898, Edison's lawyers were serving injunctions and suits against everyone else involved in the movie-making process. The hammer dropped hardest where Edison's business world was located, the New York City area. Beyond Gotham's metropolitan area, the arms of Edison's lawyers were not yet that strong. There were suits brought against Sigmund Lubin in Philadelphia, as well as both Edward Amet and George Spoor in Chicago, but these were dismissed by the groups and their lawyers. At the time of the injunctions and threatened suits, New York City was viewing passion play movies in a couple of vaudeville houses. One of the films had been based on a Salmi Morse script and had been secretly filmed on the rooftop in New York City. This film was deceivingly labeled as an official film from Oberammergau, Germany and Edison wanted to serve a cease and desist and threatened to sue unless the owners cut a deal with the Edison Company. Another passion play film had been organized by the vaudeville producers Mark Claw and Abe Erlinger. Edison's threat pretty much shut down that film and drove K&E out of any interest in the movies for the next decade. It's possible that this rather bitter incident may have also been the cause of K&E's suit against Calum for attempting to film Ben-Hur in 1908, rather than coming to some agreement. Other groups were also threatened, such as the Eden Musée and a number of import companies. While Edison had no legal right to prevent European companies from making movies, he could prevent European films from coming into America. The logic behind this was purely Gilmore. Since the European cameras were illegal in America, so were the films. Actually, there were people importing them, but it was all under the radar. Chicago would soon become a bigger importer of foreign films than New York would. Finally, the Edison Company went after American Mutoscope Biograph and Vitagraph. As for Vitagraph, they easily caved. The company was barely succeeding at the time, and they had little money in which to fight. Dyer told them to talk to Gilmore, and arrangements were quickly made to bring Vitagraph into the Edison fold as long as the company got a cut. 
Over the next few years, Vitagraph would provide Edison with some of its best films. There would be conflicts between the two companies in the coming years. It's been said that Vitagraph enjoyed its role as the film industry's gadfly, occasionally making things difficult for Edison. And then things usually settled down between the two, leaving Smith and Blackton with secret smirks on their faces. So far, this game of intimidation had worked way beyond the Edison's expectations, but Mutoscope Biograph would be another matter. The issue is rather muddy concerning Edison's true feelings about the company, and for some of those people writing about the subject, it seems obvious that Edison had a vendetta with Mutoscope Biograph. But, in my opinion, it still seems that the real instigator of the bitter war against Mutoscope Biograph was again William Gilmore. But for those who want to blame Thomas Edison, the proof is in what happened concerning William Kennedy Laurie Dixon and his work with the kinetoscope. It was Dixon who wanted to devise a projector rather than a peephole machine, and Edison refused. It was Dixon who did most of the work in developing the kinetoscope, but Edison got the credit. Finally, it was Edison who shipped Dixon off to work with Gilmore in production, rather than continue working in a lab that was suffering from an economic downturn. But still, Dixon continued to keep Edison informed about the mutoscope idea. He struggled to keep it free of any patent conflict, and he filled Edison in on its details. He was deeply hurt by the divisions between he and Edison, although he failed to understand the financial difficulties that Edison was struggling with in the mid-1890s. In the end, Dixon left Edison's employment and soon joined with Kasler and Marvin to organize this new moving picture company, Mutoscope. How much hurt Edison felt about this is not known, but some people believe he considered it a betrayal. But to me, even this possible betrayal could also be blamed on Gilmore, or more accurately, Gilmore's problem with the way Dixon perceived him. Gilmore was a heavy-handed man, but those who supported him claimed he was fair. Dixon hated Gilmore, and it's possible that this is what started this mutual society of disdain. Dixon's feelings about this brusque-acting man may be understandable, but Gilmore probably didn't think so. All through these legal conflicts, it was Gilmore who was the instigator, and he did so to protect his boss and to keep the company financially strong. Mutoscope Biograph was much more financially healthy than was Vitagraph, and it might be possible that Gilmore thought they too could come to some kind of agreement, but no one really knows as Mutoscope decided to fight rather than cave in. And it's also possible that Gilmore was determined to destroy them and had convinced Edison of the same thing. So Edison took Mutoscope Biograph to court. It took over two years for the case to come to trial. Much of the problem had to do with jurisdiction. Patent suits should go to the Federal Circuit Court but both parties were based in different states, which may be why they ended up with a judge in the Federal District Court of Vermont. 
Judge Wheeler seemed to bend over backwards to grant Edison full approval of his patent claims. Up until that time, no one except the Edison lawyers had really considered the possibility that the U.S. courts would uphold such a vague patent. Still, the press considered it a victory for America's great inventor, and immediately following the ruling, Mutoscope Biograph said they had little faith in Wheeler's ruling. The ruling proved he had little knowledge of patent law or the realities of inventing. They would appeal the case, and that ruling wouldn't come out for another eight months. Until the Wheeler ruling, Mutoscope Biograph had been doing okay. Not great, just okay. While they had been pretty successful, they had their own set of problems. The biggest was the limits to their process. Being the only company using 70mm film, their movies had the best images on the market. But lately, some of the 35mm companies had been improving their imagery. And since most of the exhibitors at that time used projectors that used 35mm film, the sales market was a vast sea of 35mm prints. As for the biograph, it didn't even sell movies or projectors. It simply sold a process, which was a projectionist showing movies through a biograph projector for one evening. With more and more people buying Edison projectors and showing better prints, the value of a biograph package was dropping. After the Wheeler ruling, Mutoscope Biograph stopped making comedies as well as knockoffs of other companies' comedies and focused completely on newsreels while they appealed the ruling. Another reason Mutoscope Biograph was caught in this bind was due to the hostility that some people at the Edison Company felt towards Mutoscope Biograph, and in particular Dixon. Like I mentioned, I'm not sure if that anger came from Gilmore or Edison or whomever, but it does seem that Mutoscope Biograph's success may have had something to do with the anger. A final reason for their problems is the rather chaotic process that was created for our patent system in the United States. I don't think that our government expected that we'd foster a nation of backyard inventors that naively believed in their inherent right to make millions from their glorified butter churns and hand-cranked potato peelers. This process was corrupted well before Edison was involved with it, and the court system that was put into place to rule on its inconsistencies had no knowledge of the world of science, inventions, or of the human nature behind the scientific situations they were required to rule upon. Judge Wheeler had no knowledge of what was then called persistence of vision and the different film advancement processes the chemistry behind the making of camera film or the way film responded to light, the difference between 35mm and 70mm camera film, how light and images were transformed by the glass and the lenses, or even the differences between the various types of moving picture cameras and projectors. His ruling was based on his knowledge of patent law, but he couldn't tell whether the Edison application was accurate or not. When the judge's ruling came down, 
Biograph dismissed it. They, or more properly, their lawyers, had already come to believe that the ruling would not go their way, and that they were immediately prepared to file another appeal. When it came down in March of 1902, two of the three judges on the review panel tore apart Wheeler's ruling. To them, it was obvious that Wheeler had not considered the scientific details on the process itself, nor the lack of details in the Edison patent application. What also concerned them was the lack of consideration made towards all those people who had worked on this process before Edison and Dixon. Some of those people have been talked about in past episodes of this podcast, people such as Auguste Le Prince, Edward Mybridge, the Lumieres, and especially Etienne Jules Murray. Because the patent was so vague, it left people to believe that Edison had created not only the machines, but the process of making movies. Like I mentioned earlier, some of this fault also lies with a press willing to believe such things even when Edison never really claimed them. But, as we know, I spent close to a year explaining the development of this process through this podcast before we even got to the point where Edison finally made a projector. This process was something that Wheeler didn't know and didn't bother to have explained to him. This final ruling left it all in the Edison Company's hands. What they chose to do was to repeat themselves. While it may seem foolish, considering the corruption of the patent system as well as the legal system's incompetence when dealing with patents, their thinking may not have been wrong. It would really depend upon the future role of the dice when it came to patent clerks and judges. According to Martin Sopacy, fame may have corrupted Edison's worldview. The historian even suggested that he had become a spoiled and silly man due to the legal games he now chased in order to keep his reputation as the great inventor intact. He was growing old, but he ran his own company and the only thing he really liked to do was devise machines and processes within the realm of science. Other men may have researched and experimented with the idea of an electric light but it was Edison who put it all together and even helped create an electrical system to power a city filled with light bulbs. And even if Nikola Tesla devised a better power system, Edison was the father of it all in the eyes of the public. He didn't create the movies. The moving picture machines, camera film, the film editing process, or film technique and he may not have even suggested any good ideas for any one of his early films. But in the eyes of the world, he was the father of the movies, and Edison, Gilmore, and their lawyers intended to keep it that way. After the trial, the Edison lawyers again rewrote the patent application and later that year reapplied for the patent. It was still rather vaguely worded with the intent of trying to claim all other cameras in violation of the Edison patent. Now you may ask why Edison would try this trick when his camera application was a few years behind the invention work of others. There are at least two reasons for that. One of them is that, as far as I know, the only cameras that were patented were Le Prince's camera, 
way back when, the original Edison-Dixon camera from 1893, and the camera Dixon advised upon for mutoscope. But there were others by that time. William Selig had his polyscope camera. There was Amitz's camera for the magnoscope, which disappeared by the beginning of the new century, and his former partner's second machine, which provided movies for the kinodrome. In Philadelphia, Sigmund Lubind also had a machine he used to make movies for his cineograph. But of greatest concern seems to have been the Warwick camera, which was being devised by Robert Paul for Charles Urban. This British camera was being personally used by the Biograph Company for shooting outdoors on location, as the Biograph camera was just too large and heavy. By the time that Edison submitted his last patent application for a movie camera, Biograph had started importing the newer devices by Robert Paul. That was the one that was most in danger of being in violation of the patent obsession. In other words, the Edison people were aiming their guns at Biograph again. Finally, in 1904, the patent was approved again. Edison threatened Biograph again, and Biograph again submitted an appeal. This time, they faced Judge George Ray of New York's Southern Division of the U.S. Circuit Court. That meant New York City and the surrounding area. While Ray did have problems with the patent application, his real concern was with the last ruling. In particular, while the appellate panel had stated that the application descriptions were too vague and showed an intent to claim more credit than it had a right to, the panel never defined what those real limits were. They never specifically said something such as, stick to the specifics of the machine, or, since others have already laid claim to what you are claiming, you need to define exactly what you are specifying without impinging upon those previous claims. So Judge Ray set out to define those terms. What he was attempting to do was understand what constituted the workings and functions of a camera that recorded moving images. He asked all the lawyers to bring in a model of their clients' machines, and he would examine them, despite not really having any understanding of the workings of a movie camera. With the machines before him, he set about attempting to understand the differences between the biograph and the projecting kinetoscope, or whatever Edison was calling his machine at the time. What he found was quite a bit of difference, as the kinetoscope used an intermittent device that advanced film by using a gear, while the biograph used friction rollers to advance the film. The biograph also had the latham loop, which never gets mentioned, this loop was mechanically produced within the machine, but it allowed the film to advance without so much stress on the film. Edison and Gilmore were now very unhappy. Instead of ruling against Biograph, the judge had set them up as the two standards by which others would be measured, and that's what would happen as the case now passed up to the appellate court again. Two of the three judges who had heard the previous appeal were sitting on this panel. 
but one of those two judges had ruled against Edison previously. This time, with scientific ground rules set, they accepted Edison's patent application, despite its vague wording, which was an obvious intent to run shotgun over the entire film industry, despite the fact that others had already invented what he laid claim to. The judges couldn't differentiate between a film advancement mechanism that used gear sprockets to advance a film from one that used a two-fingered claw that pulled the film down. That's what the Lumieres first devised. Because of this, they ruled against the Robert Paul 35mm camera that Biograph was using. But the Biograph camera itself was not in violation, at least not exactly. For example, something that the Edison people wanted to claim and was mentioned in the patent was that all film cameras had a strip of film that passed between the light source and a lens. The fact that Le Prince's patent first defined the principle did not discourage them from making it their own claim of ownership. After all, in their eyes, Le Prince used several rotating lenses in his only patent application in America, and their camera only had one lens. Since every other camera that was devised only had one, they were all in violation. The fact that the judges could not understand this conflict or were afraid to do so is what was really gumming up the works. In the end, only the Edison and the Biograph cameras were legal in the United States. While this gave Edison Company free reign to set out and destroy companies outside of the New York area, such as Lubin's, Seelig's, and Spores, Biograph was still not bested. And it's this that's stuck in their craw. Historian Martin Sapasi explains it this way. The term national hero seems weak for those of us who remember the idolatry directed at Edison by his compatriots even after his death in 1931. During the 1930s, for instance, there was scarcely a school child in America who could not tell you that Edison's birthday was February 11th or who could not say how his inventions, which of course included the movies, had improved the quality of their lives. He goes on to say that he found it quite believable that the judge's decision was accountable to their feelings of hero worship for Edison. This last act will be played out in 1906. We're still a handful of years away from that time, but... We should all keep in our minds the power play that was taking place in the American film industry due to the Edison's obsession with being first and being the best, even if Thomas Edison had not shown any interest in the movies until quite recently. By the time I get to 1906, I'll return to this story, as these decisions will foretell the future when the Edison Company attempts to take over the film world or at least America's film world. In the next episode, I'm going to discuss one of the people mentioned in this story, Sigmund Lubin, who will be another one of Edison's formidable competitors. So thanks for listening, and I hope you stop to listen again. 